good to see everybody this morning. Before we get into God's Word this morning, let me say uh, just a word of welcome. Uh, I'm Pastor Thabiti, one of the pastors of uh, this fine church family. And again, on behalf of the whole family, I want to welcome those who are joining us this morning, uh, who are visiting us for the first time. We're glad that you're here. Uh, you see uh, these handsome brothers in the aisle, they have Bibles. If anyone is in need of a Bible, uh, please raise your hand. We'd love to give you one this morning. It, if you follow along with us in the Bible, uh, you'll be helped to learn God's Word and help to follow the sermon. So if you need a Bible, uh, raise your hands there. And we're in Luke chapter 12 uh, this morning. Uh, let me say, I've, I've been excited to get back in the pulpit this morning and to preach. Um, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll make up your own mind as to whether or not that shows in the sermon. But uh, excited to get back in the pulpit. Two weeks ago, our brother Mark came for our first anniversary and I think he encouraged y'all to fire me like eight times, right? Then last week, Brother Stephen preached like he was interviewing for the job. And so he just brought the word. I thought I better get back in the pulpit uh, before these folks change their mind. Uh, so glad to be back in the pulpit. Glad also we've been celebrating a lot of things over the last few weeks, and it's just good for us to give praise to God, isn't it? Um, so what a wonderful time yesterday afternoon. Uh, with Daniel and Eric Fagbui and their family celebrating five years of marriage. We praise God for his grace in you all's life and uh, praise God for the family who wish, yeah, worshiping with us this morning. You can clap. Yeah, amen. You got to wait for the preacher to stop talking to clap. Go on and clap. And uh, we praise God for the way the word has been going out over this last week or so. Uh, our brother George Carrera has been up in Pennsylvania. Is that right? At a men's uh, retreat, and he was preaching twice at that retreat. Michelle, any quick word as to how that's gone? Said, Amen. Praise God. So we continue to pray for him and the men that are gathering there in Pennsylvania. And Brother Jahil, you were preaching yesterday morning at Clifton Park Baptist uh, for the evangelism conference. How, how did that go, brother, in a word? Amen. Praise God. Praise God indeed. And folks are going out with the word over the next couple of weeks. So Jeff and Rick are going to be uh, at Temple Tabernacle Baptist Church. Church. When is this? Uh, May 28th is a Saturday. Saturday, May 28th, doing a similar thing, uh, speaking on evangelism and encouraging the saints there uh, in evangelism. And Christy, next weekend you're headed to uh, Canada, to Toronto, leading a women's retreat. Uh, there in Toronto. So pray as the word goes out, as it's multiplied, pray the Lord uh, would produce great fruit. Uh, and then uh, tomorrow, April 25th, anybody know what that is? That's Christy's birthday. Yeah. So happy birthday, love. <laughs> Amen. So yeah, lots of things to celebrate, lots of things to rejoice in. In fact, um, we had the privilege last Friday of partnering with Anacostia High School. You can see the, the college things on the walls here and the seniors up here. They had their um, seniors' college signing day and had an assembly at the end of school on Friday where we were announcing where students were going and studying what their plans were after school. It was an encouraging time. And we had the privilege of trying to encourage the students by providing a barbecue for them after uh, afterwards, it went really well. It was a really encouraging time, and there was a lot of food left over. So they gave us special permission to go down to the cafeteria after the service, where there are some volunteers uh, sort of working now to have a potluck. I miss potluck. And so uh, join us after the service downstairs uh, for potluck and to just sort of continue to fellowship and break bread together. Is that all right? All right. I gave you plenty of time to find Luke chapter 12. Uh, everybody there? I'm going to be in Luke chapter 12, verses thir verse 13, down to chapter 13, verse 9. Let me introduce the sermon this way. I am one of those people who was rocked on Thursday when I heard that Prince died suddenly. Prince was my dude growing up, man. For real. He could rock high heel boots and a blouse. <laughs> with lace <laughs> and a perm and be the manliest dude in the Coliseum. I mean, in those high heel boots, man, he could jump and do splits and play the guitar, man. Dude was bad, all right? He was a musical genius, flat out. And I know some of y'all like Michael Jackson, but he was number two. Huh? 
<laughs> if you're under 40 and you had good home training, <laughs> you probably ne never heard much of Prince's music. I'm not recommending it. It will hinder your sanctification, all right? <laughs> but it was the soundtrack to my life growing up as a teenager. And it was interesting because he had this way of making you not only celebrate and rejoice in life, but sometimes also think about life. And so that's what good artists do, right? They, they create things that make you rejoice and celebrate, but if they're really good at it, they make you also ponder and reflect. So consider these well-known words that sort of are the opening to Let's Go Crazy. Dearly beloved. See, y'all know, some of y'all heard Prince. I tried to front earlier, but see, he's coming out now. Coming out now, dearly beloved, we're gathered here today to do what? Get through this thing called life. It's an electric word, life. It means forever, and that's a mighty long time. But I'm here to tell you there's something else, the afterworld. That's not a bad start to a popular rock song, is it? Forget the flamboyant outfits, the stunning guitar riffs, and the steady stream of women. Prince was like everybody else in the world trying to get through this thing we call life. In very real sense, that's what our text is about this morning. Getting through life. It's a section that starts with Jesus being asked a question or a man making a request of Jesus. But the Lord's answer reveals... A deeper issue, a deeper issue of life itself. And what we learn in our text is how Jesus views life and how we are to view it too. If you're taking notes this morning, we want to ask and answer three simple but profound questions. Number one, what is life? What is life? You see that in verses 13 to 34. And number two, we want to ask the question, how should we live life? How should we live life? How should we get through this thing called life? Verses 35 to 48. And number three, what will we face in life? What will we face in life? Verse 49 down to chapter 13, verse 9. I pray the Lord would give us answers to these questions that not only help us get through this thing called life, but ready us for that life which is to come. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet, God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, 
O you of little faith. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Stay dressed for action. and Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? The Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. You think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also. Until I dig around it and put on manure, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your divinely inspired word. Every 
jot and tittle of it will stand. Every word of it is true. We receive it for what it really is, the word of God. And we pray, Father, that you would bless it to our souls, cause us to grow by it, challenge us, open our eyes, confirm us in the faith and affirm right thinking. Motivate us, O Lord, to live in such a way as to please you, to honor your name, and to bless others. Be with us, O Lord, we pray, as we think about life and help us to lay hold to that life which truly is life. And we pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You might have noticed that as we began our reading of this section, one of the recurring words running through the the first half of our text is that word life. And by the time you come to the end of the text, one of the main thoughts that's, that's pressing in on us is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it will mean when he comes, whether or not we are ready when he comes and ready for that life that he brings. And so in one sense, that's the scarlet thread running through this chapter, this idea of life. And the first question we want to ask and try to answer is, well, what exactly is life? You see there in verse 13 of chapter 12, it says someone in the crowd, they don't name him, we don't know much about him, said to him, that is Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, you guys know that tone. (laughs) If you've got siblings, you, you've spoken that tone, right? You've gone to mom and daddy, tell my sister. Mama, my brother won't. Tell my brother, right? Here's a guy demanding, insisting that the Lord Jesus would, would do what he requests to command his brother to split the inheritance. Now, it's interesting. That's an interesting thing just to yell out in the crowd, isn't it? You're just someone in the crowd. It ain't even clear that you're a disciple. It ain't even clear that you really know Jesus. But you just yell out, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And what's striking is, if there's an inheritance to be divided, that means there's a death to be mourned. He didn't seem really concerned about that. He didn't say, help me and my brother get over our father's death. He doesn't say, in the aftermath of our loss, Help me and my brother agree. Tell my brother to give me half the stuff. To divide the inheritance with me. And this is why in verse 14, the Lord says, man, what I ain't got nothing to do with that. My name is Bennett and I ain't in it, right? He says, says, listen, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? The Lord is really clear. He didn't come to get entangled in the petty affairs and grievances of men. He has a a bigger agenda, and that agenda has to do with life and the state of our hearts. And so in verse 15 and following, he begins to really sort of unfold some lessons to us about life. And there are five, if you're taking notes. Number one, life is not defined by a lot of stuff. See it there in verse 15? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What is covetousness? Well, that's wanting stuff that ain't yours, isn't it? It's one of the things that's forbidden in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. You shouldn't look on anything that belongs to anybody else and desire it for yourself. And out of that kind of heart disease, of covetousness, come all kinds of sins. Now think about it. People steal because more fundamentally they covet, don't they? People commit adultery because more fundamentally they covet. They desire someone else's spouse, something that does not belong to them. And you can think of how many scams are effective because the human heart is infected with covetousness? How many people get taken by those internet scams? You know, you get the email that says you're related to some king in Africa who died and left you $16 trillion. (laughs) All they need is your social security number and your bank account information. You know why those emails keep going out? Because people keep falling for it. They're covetous. The pyramid schemes. Bernie Madoff. Hey, billions. And people lost fortunes on a Ponzi scheme. Or oh, the prosperity gospel. 
That is only popular because people are covetous. They want that bling. They, they want that stuff. And so the first thing Jesus tells us about the nature of life is it does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Matt stole my illustration. We didn't talk about it, but I was going to talk about all these storage bins we have. It is one of the fastest growing businesses in the country. It's striking. And you know the people who own storage bins? People who have big houses. They filled up their houses with stuff, and they ain't got nowhere else to put stuff. And so they take their stuff, and they buy a bin, and they put their stuff in the bin, and sometimes have two or three storage bins. Stuff is killing us. People are gagging to death on stuff. And Jesus here lets us know it's because sometimes we begin to think life is defined by what we have how much we have, the abundance of it. And so he tells this story, this, this famous parable here about this man who, who has barns full of what? Stuff, right? And he looks out on his barns and he, he feels real good about business that year. He's like, yo, my brother's just rolling in the paper this year, man. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tear down the old barn and I'm going to build me a bigger barn because I got more stuff coming. And I'm going to lay it up in there and I'm going to say to self. He even says, self? <laughs> you know, <laughs> talks to himself, self, you know? Look, relax, chill, eat, drink, and be merry. And he seems to presume he's just going to do that for a long time, doesn't he? And then God speaks to him. And the first word out of God's mouth is fool. It is foolish to think that our lives will not end. It is foolish to think that our lives are defined by what we have. It is foolish to think that our lives will not end and we will go on enjoying all that we have. One day, sooner than we think, our souls will be required of us. We will be called to give an account to God. And here's the thing. You won't be able to justify your life by what you have. And if you try, you might hear something like this that also comes from the Bible. What do you have that you did not first receive? What do we have that God did not himself give to us? You're not going to impress God with your possessions. like, man, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I created all this with nothing, with a word. And so it's a real mistake fundamentally to think that life is made up of our possessions. And so you get the the line in verse 21. Those of us who think that we're going to store up things for ourselves and that's going to be the measure of life, well, we're like this man and, and we're laying up treasure for ourselves, but we're not rich toward God. We'll come back to that phrase later, rich toward God. But just notice right now, there's a way to be rich toward yourself and stingy toward God. And God calls that foolish. Life is not defined by how much we own. Number two, life is more than food and clothing. Look there with me in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 12. The Lord goes on to speak to, this, speak to us. He says, and he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. See the connection between verses 22 and 23? Verse 22 says, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat and what you wear, right? Verse 23 tells us why. For, or for this reason, or because, life is more than food and more than clothing. And God says, don't worry about those needs that you have. Why? Because in fact, life is more than those things. It's not defined by how much you have, but it is valued more, actually, than what you have. And he gives this illustration in verse 24. Look there. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? You know, I almost thought verse 24 is describing the Baltimore Ravens. 
Can't win a game, can't win a championship, but they're eating, right? But he's talking about little birds. Consider them. God feeds the birds, things that we regard as insignificant in and of themselves. And, and they, don't, they don't work, right? They don't have barns. They don't have storehouses. And if God feeds the birds, how much more us? How much more will he provide for us who he values more highly than ravens? The reason we shouldn't worry about our needs and the reason our life is worth more than our needs is you and I are worth more to God. God cares for and provides for us in this way. Our minds then should rest on him. And we should cease to fret about even our needs. The question is, is do you believe that? We believe that, that we are worth more to God than ravens, that we are worth more to God to such an extent that he will provide for us. Are we so secure in the knowledge of God's goodness to us and love for us that we will cease to fret about real needs? what we'll eat, what we'll wear. See, it's wrong to think that we ain't got nothing, so we ain't worth nothing. Notice verse 24, when the Lord says, of how much more value are you than the birds? He does not end it with a question mark. He ends it with an exclamation point. It's not a rhetorical question, it's a definitive statement. You are worth much more to God than the creation that he clothes. And if he clothes the creation, how will he not also clothe and feed us? The question is, do we believe it? Life is not defined by a lot of stuff, and life is valued more than food and clothing. Number three, life is worsted by, wasted excuse me, by worry. Life is wasted by worry. See that there in verses 25 to 28. Maybe there's some people who are saying to themselves, Jesus, that's fine. You know, all this God cares about me and stuff, but I still got to eat. How brother going to eat? You know, how am I going to get through this thing called life? And so the Lord says in verses 25 and 26, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? And to be anxious is to worry. And the world is full of worry, isn't it? Just full of it. And we're tempted to think, aren't we, that worrying is thinking. We're tempted to think that worrying is planning. And we're tempted to think that by our worrying, we are somehow resting control of the situation. But that's what Jesus says. By our worry, we can't even add one hour to our life. Now, Jesus says, that's a small thing. And the rest of us are like, yo, if I can get another hour, <laughs> that'd be great. But Jesus says, adding an hour to your life is nothing. Not to him. Because he's going to add to our lives, if we are in him, eternity. Time without end. And he says, you can't even do this simple thing of extending your life one hour more by worrying. So why are you going to worry about it at all? He's just beckoning us to recognize that our life is meant to be lived in such a way that we trust him and not ourselves. We lean not to our own understanding, and we certainly don't lean to our worry, but we lean and trust ourselves to God. And if we can't add an hour to our lives... Why are we going to stress about a job? Why, why are we going to twist ourselves into a pretzel about protecting our children? Why are we going to wring our hands about ending war and ISIS and rebels? Why are we going to stress about making our neighborhoods safe? All good things. All things worth praying about. But as my wife is fond of saying, if you're going to worry, don't pray. If you're going to pray, don't worry. Christ is calling us to a very similar thing. If we're going to worry, we'll waste our lives. But if we really want to experience life, 
We won't worry. We'll trust in him, the one who holds life in his hands. Look again at verses 27 and 28. He gives us another illustration. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these lilies. (laughs) God dresses grass better than he dresses kings. Verse 28. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, there it is again, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you have little faith. Lord is saying, when it comes to life, God's got you. He's got you. He'll supply your needs. He says, do you need evidence? Look around you. Look at the beauty of flowers and fading grass and sparrows flitting around. Does God not provide for all of his creation? He will most certainly provide for those who bear his image and his likeness. It's for us, us of little faith, to believe it. Notice the fourth thing about life. Life is for seeking God and his kingdom. Life is for seeking God and his kingdom. I love following our church's Google group sometimes. I'm sure you've seen it. Sometimes there's an email that comes out to the group And uh, the subject line will say, need, all caps, and then the person will go on and describe their needs. And sometimes I see things come out to the group, and people express a need, and they describe a need. I'm like, man, ain't nobody going to be able to help with that. You're on your own with that, dog. (laughs) I'm going to go and pray for you. And then it's not long before you see another email come from that same person, and it just has two words in all caps, need Met. It's the most wonderful thing. People seek help and needs get met. And that's perhaps a small picture of verses 29 to 31. When people seek God's kingdom, God meets their needs in life. In fact, life is meant to be lived seeking God and his kingdom. And the natural consequence of doing that is God taking care of those who are seeking him. So notice verses 29 and 30. Do not seek what you are to eat. And what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. Stop right there. In other words, there's something pagan and worldly about worrying about what we will eat and what we will drink. All the unbelieving, sinful nations, they give their attention to that. They, they stress about that. They worry about that. But that belongs to those who don't know God. That kind of worry. Instead, look at the text. We ought to remember, our Father knows that you need them. We are to seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. That's just a beautiful text. Our Father knows what we need. My dad left when I was 13 and uh, moved across town. I'd see him occasionally. And when I would see him, we would have these kind of usually superficial conversations. He would ask me how I've been, how school, and, and um, I would say something like, I haven't seen you in a while, and, and he would say something else, and, and I'd get around to saying, you know, you got $5? <laughs> but usually he would ask a question along the lines of, uh, do you need anything? And he didn't know. And he didn't know in large measure because he wasn't there. And I want to honor him in asking the question he wanted on some level to supply. But there was always this poverty in my heart when it came to my father. If he really knew me, really knew what I needed. And somehow my telling him what I needed didn't seem to answer that poverty. It's almost as if the fact that I had to tell him because he wasn't there reinforced the poverty. It's not like that with God. Long before we ask, long before we pray, long before we know what our needs are, our Father in heaven sees and knows 
He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He's never caught off guard by our needs. And there is no need that we have that he can't supply. And he gives us this promise. If we would seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then he would supply all of our needs. And this is the testimony of the saints. What does David say in the Psalms? He says, I'm an old man. He says, I've been young and I'm now old. And this one thing I've never seen, I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor their children begging for bread. That's what our father is like. He will never forsake us. And our children will never beg bread. And he will have a constant, up-to-date, even before time knowledge of our need. And he will supply it. Life was meant to seek him. And notice what's said in verse, uh, well, yeah, life is meant to, to seek him, to seek his kingdom. And there we find our needs met. Life is not defined by a lot of stuff. Life is more than food and clothes. Life is wasted by worrying. Life was given to us to seek God in his kingdom. Five and finally, life follows treasure. Life follows treasure. What an encouragement verse 32 is. The kingdom is not like an Easter egg hunt. You don't search for it wondering will you ever find it. It's, it's not hidden so that you will miss it. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Hallelujah. It delights him to give his children his kingdom. It delights him to give to us who are seeking him all that is his royal possession. He's not grudging about it. He's not, he's not resentful about it. He, he doesn't have to make any apologies about it as if he didn't have it, as if he, as if he lacked. No, God gets pleasure over our lives, in our lives, as he gives to us his kingdom that we're seeking. What wonderful encouragement that is. If you ask, beloved, as a child of God, anything of God and his kingdom, the Bible says you have it. If you ask anything according to his will, he hears you and he has your, you have his, your requests. He says, ask anything of me. What a wonderful promise. What a wide open, what a blank check. Ask anything of me and you have it. You have your requests. And once again, I'm reminded of how weak and uninspired my prayers are. Here's a father who owns a kingdom who delights to give it to me. And he says, come, get it. And the question is, where is our heart, right? So look at verse 33. The Lord goes on to apply this. He says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. You see, we can use this life's possessions to, to bless the needy because we know the Father gives us a kingdom and a treasure that cannot be taken away, stolen, or rusted. Show me a person who cannot give to others, and I'll show you a person who does not believe the Father gives to him. Show me a person who cannot part with their things, and I'll show you a person who does not believe the treasures of heaven are better. It's really that simple. Our life follows our treasure. So verse 34, where your treasure is, there your heart or the, your life, the seed of your life will be also. See, the key to life to have treasures in heaven, verse 23. To be rich toward God, verse 21. The key to life is not to live for ourselves and what we gain on this rusty ball. The key to life is to live for God and what we gain in his kingdom. That's why we were given life, to know him, to enjoy him, to seek him. And to know his goodness, his love, his grace, and his favor. I think Prince had it right. We are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Electric word, life. It means forever, and that's a mighty long time. And I'm here to tell you there's something else. The afterworld. In Christian speak the kingdom of God. 
That's the something else for which life was created. To find and enter that kingdom whose king is our father, who supplies our needs. The question is, how do you do that? Prince doesn't tell you in songs. God tells you in his word. You enter this kingdom by confessing your sins, turning away from them, and putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. God's giving to us begins with his giving his son. He sent his son into the world so that we would not be condemned. We would not be judged eternally to hell because of our sin. He sent his son into the world to take our place, to wear our human likeness, to obey God perfectly for us so that we would have a perfect righteousness before God and to die on the cross that really was made for us, a cross that we should have been hung on where we should have paid the penalty of our own sins. But instead, Christ takes our place and he bears the penalty. He suffers God's judgment. He is crushed for our sin. And he's buried for three days. But then God raises him from the dead, proving that he is the Lord of death and life. He is the giver of life. And so he raises his son from the dead so that everyone who has faith in Jesus, likewise, will be raised from death to life in Christ and will live forever in Christ in this kingdom that Christ has purchased and is bringing. Life means forever, and that's a mighty long time. And it's lived either with God as your Father in His love, or it's lived against God, suffering His judgment in hell. God sets before us today life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life. Choose life. The life that Christ gives to all who trust in him. If you want to know more about what that means and how to enter this life, if that's just the beginning for you, we would like nothing more than to help you think through this and come to have the life that many of us have come to have through faith in Jesus Christ. So join us for the potluck and let's talk about it over, over lunch. Or see us at the door or talk with the Christian friend who brought you. We would like nothing more than to patiently, lovingly, without judgment, but with great hope, tell you how you may have this life. Choose life. Which brings us then to our second question. How should we live this life? We've seen some facts about life, but let's assume that we are citizens now in the, in the kingdom of God. And we're still thinking about how do we get through this life? We're not yet in heaven. So how are we to live? And in some ways, that's what is taken up in verses 35 uh, down to 48. And in this section, we're going to see two lessons, really, about how we are to live this life until the coming of Christ. And the first lesson we might see there in verses 35 to 40, and we might put it this way. Number one, stay woke. <laughs> Nowadays, stay woke has become a slogan and a hashtag. The phrase refers to what we used to call, some of us older heads, consciousness, really. It means to be aware of the cultural and ethnic and political and social realities of our time. But in verses 35 to 40, our Lord teaches us to stay woke in a different, more important sense. You see, here in these verses, staying woke refers to being ready for the master's return. We are to stay dressed for action and keep our lamps burning. You see that there in verse 35? Those who are awake when the Lord returns are, are called blessed or happy. We're the happy ones who are awake and ready when the Savior returns. Notice the amazing thing in verse 37. Look there. The master will dress himself for service and have them, the woke servants, recline at table, and he, the master, will come and serve them, the servants. Isn't that amazing? In the story, the master serves the servant. Verse 40 tells us that this parable is really about the Son of Man. It's really about Jesus coming back at an unexpected time. The, the Lord Jesus is coming again. He's coming back to get his servants and to take them into his final and full kingdom. He's coming back to judge those who do not trust him and do not follow him. 
And no man knows the day or the hour when this will take place. But when he comes, the Lord of lords will in some indescribable sense then serve the servants who have stayed awoke for his return, who have waited for him. So to stay woke in the Christian sense means to actively watch and wait for the return of the Lord, to wait for his second coming. Titus 2 verse 13 tells us that this is our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's our blessed hope. It's our happy hope. Now for all of those who are experiencing some unhappiness right now, What are you hoping will make you happy? You think about this life and happiness. Where are you resting your happiness? I mean, Jesus has just told us in so many words that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. He's told us that actually our life is worth more than our possessions. And he's told us that worrying won't add any life to us. That our life is really meant to be used to seek God and his kingdom. Ah, there's where happiness is. And he says here in this text that our happy hope, our blessed hope, our joy comes from waiting for the return of our Savior. It's striking how often the New Testament tells us that our joy and our hope is connected to the promise of this coming. That if we live for a happiness that's only parallel on this earth, we will find ourselves ultimately unhappy. I I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, if we find that there's nothing, I'm paraphrasing that, that makes us happy in this life, the most probable explanation is we were made for another world. That's what the second coming of Jesus is about. The coming of another world where there is only happiness. And that's our blessed hope. That's our happy confidence that when he comes, we'll see him and we'll be like him and joy and satisfaction will flood our soul. So Jesus says the ones who are happy are the ones who are waiting for Christ, who are looking for his return, who are watching who dress themselves and ready themselves, who are on their posts like good servants awaiting the arrival of their master. And the surprising thing is, when the master comes, he'll serve the servant. Now, you want to use the powers of your imagination this afternoon to think about what it will be for the Lord Jesus to come and serve you. What joy and satisfaction will come from that. How are we to live this life? We need to stay woke. But number two, we need to stay on our grind. We stay woke and we stay on our grind, which means we we continue the work that God has given us to do. So staying woke is not the same thing as daydreaming. It's not the same thing as looking into the stars and kind of zoning out. While we watch and wait for the Lord's coming, we must also do the work that he has given us to do. We see that in verses 43 and 44. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. It just keeps getting better, this text. There he is, he says, blessed again, happy, is the one who's doing his master's work. And then it says this, when the master comes, he will set that servant over all of his possessions. Maybe the best way to sort of interpret this is the way the Lord says it elsewhere. That if we are faithful in little, he'll make us faithful in much. That if we attend to what he calls us to do in this life, on this earth, he will give us much to steward and enjoy for his glory in that world to come. But notice now, the unfaithful steward will be judged. That's what we see in verses 45 and through 47. Look there with me. The Lord says, but if that servant says to himself... My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. 
And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. It's a graphic parable of judgment, isn't it? And, and the horrors of judgment. Well, well, this description, as graphic as it is, is, is weak. Be found not ready when Christ comes and not stewarding the work that he's assigned us. Well, in this text is one of the ways that we disprove our profession. We find ourselves regarded as unfaithful and judged. And then verses 48 and 49 talks to us about those who didn't know. So 45 to 47 are those unfaithful servants who knew to do better and refused to do better, and they reasoned that, well, he's not coming back today. They weren't woke. And they got caught. And verses 48 and 49 gives us a different servant who did not know, and, and yet he did what deserved a beating. Well, compared to the other guy, he's going to receive a light beating. Everyone to whom is the principle, much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. Here's the thing. We sit, beloved, under the preaching and teaching of God's word in Bible study on Sunday mornings. I pray and trust that we're having our, our daily times with the Lord, reading his word. Uh, we, we maybe listen to preaching on the radio or watch someone on television, open the word. We attend Christian conferences, and, and we just live in this world where the word is streaming to us all the time. This text says we're increasing our accountability before God. To whom much is given, much is required. And to whom much has been entrusted, much will be expected. I mean, that means we should be listening to God's word with a certain kind of soberness and a certain kind of eagerness to act upon what we learn, to apply it, to digest it, to spread it. And we don't want to be like that man in James who looks into the, the mirror of God's word and, and then turns around. As soon as he turns away from the mirror, forget what he saw. We don't want to be those stony ground hearers. We don't want to be those hearers for whom the ravens snatch away the word to see. We want the seed to take root in our hearts. We want to embrace it. We want it to sprout. We want it to grow up and to bear much fruit. And what that means is we need to stay awake looking for Christ's coming and apply what he has taught us in his word and handle the stewardship that he's given us. And so one pressing question for us is, what has Christ called me to do as his servant? There are some general things that we are called to, to gather with his people, to spread the gospel, to make disciples. Those things fall upon us all, but there are among us, all of us, specific things that he's called us to do as college students or as employers and supervisors, as, as preachers, as mothers and fathers. We've given a stewardship. What are we doing with that stewardship? Are we faithful in our discharge of it? Are we exercising according to God's word? Have we recognized the accountability we have before God because of the privilege he gives us to hear his word? Now the flesh will say at this point, I better stop coming to church then. Better find a way to dodge God's word. But the Spirit will say, yes, give me more. Command what you will, Lord, and grant what you command. Make me ready. Dress me. Keep me awake for your coming. How do we live this life? Well, we live this life trying to stay woke and staying on our grind. This brings us to our final question. What will we face in this life? I trust we see that life is a very precious thing and it requires us being attentive to it. But life is not something we get to live without opposition, without challenge. If you've been alive longer than a couple of years and you've become aware of the world, you, you know that there are challenges in your life. And you know that they come with certain speed and sometimes with certain force. And in the rest of this text, our Lord goes through a number of challenges that we will face in this life. And here's the thing. He tells us about these things so that we would not be overwhelmed by them, that we would not be distracted by them, that we would not be tempted to unbelief because of them. 
And so let's walk through these real quickly. Number one, the first one is distress. We're going to see distress in this life. That's what we see in verses 49 to 53. Look what Jesus says of himself. I came to cast fire on the earth and with wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is what? My distress until it is accomplished. He's headed toward the cross in Jerusalem, and his distress is increasing. His suffering and anguish has already started. He has come to experience this baptism of, of God's judgment for the salvation of sinners. And there's no way up for us to follow Jesus without following him in some measure into our own distress. And so look what happens in verse 51. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided against two, three. There'll be five divided, three against two, two against three. They'll be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A little tongue-in-cheek, that last division we understand, right? You know, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. <laughs> Father and son, mother and daughter. This is distress in the family. And this distress is particularly because of Christ and the following of Christ. And so families find themselves sometimes a spouse coming to faith in the Lord and another spouse not yet a believer, and there is significant distress in that relationship. Or children want to follow the Lord and parents don't yet know him. And significant conflict arises because of that. Think not that the Lord has come to give us peace in everything. Sometimes his purposes include distress. And he will use that distress to purify and strengthen our faith. Not only distress, but notice also hypocrisy. Verses 54 to 56. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there'll be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? When we lived in the Cayman Islands, man, we learned a whole lot about weather. (laughs) and Weather pattern because of this little thing called hurricanes. We learn to read barometric pressure. We learn to sort of look at the sea. And, and it's true what novelists have told us, that the sea has moods. And sometimes the moods, man, it, it, the mood of the sea can be told by the color of it. When it gets darker, it's, it's angrier looking and sometimes choppier. Uh, when it's calm, it's very placid and very clear. You, could, you, know, you can sort of just see this flat surface as far as the eye can see. And so we learn to sort of tell the times looking at the sea and looking at the sky and, and reading the weather. Jesus says there were people like that there in his day who could do that with great skill, could tell you when there was going to be a sandstorm coming, could tell you when there was going to be a a rainstorm to come, but they couldn't tell you that their God was visiting them. They didn't know the times as it related to their own souls. They didn't know the times as it related to the visitation of God. And so they were wise about all kinds of things, but ignorant about the Lord who was standing right in front of them. And isn't that true today? We've got people who commit themselves to all kinds of things and are discerning about all kinds of things, who can tell you everything you need to know about political issues. They can tell you everything you need to know about psychology. They can tell you everything you need to know about business and economics, but they can't tell you the state of their souls. And they can't tell you how near Christ is, even as near as their mouth. If they would confess and believe in their hearts, they would be saved. People sit under God's word and they parse God's word and they inspect the preacher and they challenge the preacher, all of which is fine. And they debate you about the scripture and about this theory of translation and that. And and you ask them, but what does it mean? I don't know. Jesus says there's hypocrisy in that. There's pretending to religiosity, but not really having faith. There can be this sort of semblance of righteousness and godliness but denying the power of it and that's a challenge to be true and not hypocrites to be genuine and not fakers to be imperfect yes but to really be trusting and following the Lord in his grace and we're to inspect our hearts for any measure of hypocrisy Help, ask the Lord to help us to see where we praise him with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. 
Help us to praise him first with our hearts, then with our lips, and with all of ourselves. There's a third challenge we're going to face is not only distress and hypocrisy, but we're also going to face strife inside the church. See it there in verses 57 to 59? That's what's going on with all of those lawsuits. They're on the way to the judge and and on the way to take their their issues to the court. Maybe he has in mind the man who asked the question back in the beginning and said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I don't know. But isn't it the case that some people have turned away from the local church and away from Christ because they've experienced some strife in the church? They've been hurt by the church. Christians have been unkind to them. Those things really do happen. And they really do hurt. My point, and I think the Lord's point in telling us this, is that we not be surprised. That we not stumble when it happens. That we not leave the fellowship of his people. But that we double down and recommit to reconciling with his people. To walking with his people. At some point future, if not already, ARC is going to face strife. There's going to be some division. There's going to be some challenge. There's going to be some hurt feelings. There's going to be some misunderstanding. There's going to be some strife. It'll be a challenge to us as we live this life and as we look to the Lord's coming. And the question is, how will we respond to it? The Lord gives us instruction, doesn't he? To leave our gifts at the altar, to go be reconciled. Be reconciled to pursue each other in love, and to carry on together. May he give us grace to do that. For there's another challenge that comes to us in chapter 13, verses 1 to 5, the challenge of disaster. We might call it natural disaster. You see there that story about the Galileans who were killed by Pilate, and he did a grotesque thing. He mixed their blood with their sacrifices. He blasphemed their worship as well as their lives. And Jesus goes on to mention another disaster. He talks about the tower at Siloam that fell and and killed those people, right? And the the disciples want to know, well, what's going on there? And and maybe they assume this has happened to them because there's some sin in their lives or something like that. That's That's another lie of the prosperity gospel, that tragedy comes to us because somehow there's sin in our lives or something of that sort. That's just a lie. Jesus says, no, there's another lesson to learn here. When you see tragedy... Know that God is calling you to himself. Again, to quote C.S. Lewis, he says, sometimes God whispers to us, but he speaks to us with a megaphone in our pain. So God is saying here in this this example of a tower falling and killing those people and and this wicked ruler um, killing and, and murdering those people, he's saying, listen, don't only think about those persons and those persons' states of life. Repent. You repent. Your life is going to be required of you too. Martin Luther said that when Jesus said repent, he meant repent and keep on repenting. Keep on turning to God. And these tragedies are notices that that we need to keep turning to God lest we find ourselves in a tower, lest we find planes crashing into buildings, lest we find ourselves in the crossfire or some shootout at a bus stop. What's the lesson in that? The world is broken, it's fallen, it's full of pain, it's full of tragedy, and God is calling us to come to him, to come to him. It's often said that suffering will make you either bitter or better. When Jesus says repent, he's saying let your suffering make you better. Come to God. One last thing. We will sometimes face in this life seasons of fruitlessness. See it there in verses 6 to 9 of chapter 13. That parable that our Lord tells perhaps has Israel in mind, but he doesn't mention Israel specifically, and so it has general application to those who profess to follow him. It says, as that day of judgment comes, and it will surely come like a, a, a guy who comes three years to a fruit tree that bears no fruit. There'll be one day where that tree will be cut down. And maybe by reason of God's patience, he will give that tree another year. He is long-suffering with us. He is patient with us. But we are not to think that there is any genuine Christian life that does not produce Christian fruit. We are not to think that the Spirit of God lives in us, and yet he does not change us. And we're not to think that we go from being sinners to being perfect. That's the kind of hypocrisy that we've been warned of already. 
But we are to understand that he who began a good work in us will carry it on until completion on the day of Christ Jesus. We ought to understand what John says in 1 John chapter 3, that no one who knows Christ and no one who has the word of Christ dwelling in them keeps on sinning. He sanctifies those he saves. He beautifies those he loves. He produces fruit in our lives for his glory. A few years ago, the sort of Christian hip-hop sort of circles, one of those cats produced T-shirts that just said, bear some fruit or bear fruit. What a great T-shirt. That's just right out of the Bible. Bear fruit. It's what God has come into our lives to do, to produce fruit that remains and fruit that brings him glory. And sometimes we will enter seasons of apparent fruitlessness. I think we'll think two things in those seasons. One, believing in Christ, we must trust that he's doing things that we can't see. And he very often is. And two, believing in Christ, we should call upon him to do some things that we can see, to strengthen our faith, to bring him glory. This life that we've been given, it's not that long. It's really a commercial for that life which is to come. The life that we've been given is a stewardship, something we're entrusted to. And we're not to use it in such a way that we build up treasure for ourselves in this world. We're to live it in such a way that we send our treasure ahead into the world to come. We're to be rich toward God and giving ourselves and all that we have to his service. That's what life is for. It's how we get through this thing called life. And it's how we lay hold to that life, which really is life. Let's pray together. Lord, your word tells us that we indeed would be held accountable for what we hear. Make that glad news. Make it sobering to us, yes, but make it, make it happy. For if you are going to call us to hear your word and you have been so kind to instruct us in your word, remind us that you have given your spirit to us to enable us to grow in your word. and Help us to live spirit-filled lives that bear fruit, that turn to you in disaster that reconciles with our brothers and sisters when there is strife. Grant that we would face, O oh Lord, persecution and trial and, and all manner of things in this life with the confident hope that there is a life to come and there, there is our happiness, placed well beyond the enemies of this world where they cannot reach, where moth cannot eat it, where rust does not destroy it. Grant, O oh Lord, that we should escape the clutches of worldliness, that we should escape worry and fear and doubt, and that we would have yet more faith in you, the Father who knows us, who loves us, who delights to give us his kingdom. Help us to believe that and trust that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.